two months on from the Reserve Bank's report on financial stability and the three sectors identified as posing a risk have worsened. The Auckland housing market continues to soar upward. Dairy prices are still in the doldrums and on the global front, Greece is at crisis point. Insight examines why some commentators are calling for a change of course before the economy suffers any serious setback. High household debt and overheated prices, especially in Auckland. Volatility at an international level, most recently the Greek debt crisis and the Chinese stock market. A continuing slump in dairy prices and the Reserve Bank Governor Graham Wheeler's warning of easy global financial conditions and low interest rates encouraging investment in riskier assets. There's an increasing risk that current conditions unwind in a disorderly fashion, disrupting the cost and availability of funding for the New Zealand financial system. These are all risks identified by the Reserve Bank to what it calls an otherwise sound and effective financial system. The Prime Minister, though, is shrugging off worries about the need to stimulate the economy. I am not at all panicked about what I see in the economy at the moment, but I accept there are a few headwinds there that weren't so prevalent a little while ago. Uh, But I really urge people to take a deep breath. I mean, yes, dairy prices are down a little bit, but there's a lot of other factors in our economy. And the Economic Development Minister, Stephen Joyce, is talking up economic performance. We have a clear plan which is about encouraging investment, building skills, encouraging innovation and opening up markets with things like the Korean FDA. The opposition politicians will want to panic, but we've seen them want to panic several times over the last six years. But not everyone is so sure. I'm Philippa Tolley, and this insight asks how worried New Zealanders should be about debt levels and financial stability. In the last week, a survey of business confidence indicated optimism was at its lowest level for three years. The Institute of Economic Research Study indicated the New Zealand economy is losing momentum, with growth below 3% in the year ahead. At the same time, economists at New Zealand's biggest bank, the ANZ, suggested the situation was getting so bad the government needed to spend more money to stimulate the economy. But it was only a year ago, happily for the government, just before the election, the chief economist at the HSBC coined the term rock star to describe New Zealand's economy. So are these reports just the normal ebb and flow? Some commentators are also asking if lessons were really learned from the global financial crisis. So the financial stability reports the Reserve Bank now puts out half-yearly are really crucial sources of information, but they always have the don't worry at the end, we've got it under control theme to them. Jane Kelsey is a law professor at Auckland University and is prominent as a campaigner against the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership but she's also been writing about the need to move away from what she sees as a reliance on a financial sector-driven economy. One of the most interesting of the IMF research unit papers talks about affluent countries being in a state of denial. And I think if you look here at our responses to the global financial crisis, to the finance company collapses, to the disasters around insurance and the Canterbury earthquakes, 
there's been an inability to kind of grasp the enormity of the challenges that confront us, especially with the levels of household debt and national debt that we have. And an economy that is far from being a rock star, it's much more accurately, I think, a, a debt-dependent economy which is kind of relies on easy credit as a drug. And my concern really is that we have the debate about how we do things differently before we confront a crisis. Um, the talk around the potential bursting of the property bubble, I think, has added impetus to that. And some of the research uh, in Iceland and Ireland in particular that I did shows the consequences that are quite devastating after a financial crisis. She believes the banks, homeowners and the government are all dependent on creating wealth through buying and selling houses. And that stifles debate on changes, as all parties fear a market collapse. But in a book to be released in the next week, Jane Kelsey argues there are warnings on the horizon. One of the things I do in, in the book is to look at uh, a checklist that some of the IMF researchers have developed about the kind of triggers for future crises based on analyses of recent ones. And I'm, I'm sad to say that New Zealand ticks every one of those boxes. So there is absolutely no basis for complacency about how New Zealand weathered uh, the crisis. Um, and consistently, our level of debt not public debt, which is what you hear about from you know, all of the, the neoliberal side, uh, but of the private debt, the debt owed by the country, owed by the banks internationally and owed by ordinary households is where our, our real vulnerability lies. It's surprising to Jane Kelsey how many people believe they will be bailed out by the government if the situation turns bad. If you look at the Money Week survey of how many people think that the government guarantees um, uh, savings and the government guarantees KiwiSaver and that the government will step in if there's a financial crisis, people are, I think, not really awake to the risks that confront them. Others are more optimistic about New Zealand's resilience. The chief executive of the Employers and Manufacturers Association, Kim Campbell, says the country is positioned well to weather any storms on the horizon. If you look at the horror story on, uh, emerging in Greece, the fact is they never have taken the kind of um, adjustments to their economy that we took over the last 20 years. And whilst many people may have criticised some of the earlier reforms that started in the longer government and have continued, they've certainly made New Zealand a much more competitive economy. Uh, if you listen to the really believable economic commentators lecturing policymakers in Europe, they're saying all the things that we've already done. So in New Zealand, in many respects, is a much better place than most other economies. Um, you know, we've got a free exchange rate. We're not tied as they are in Europe to a eurozone. Uh, we have banks who are well capitalised and well supervised. We also have a, um, a public policy discourse which is quite mature. We do, and as a business community here, we are critical of our planning processes, which are still not up to, 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 to speed, but they're better than some of our uh, competitor economies. So in many sectors, we're actually quite competitive. That said, Kim Campbell says well-trod responses to times of financial stress are not creating the expected solutions. And what we've discovered is that the traditional models, which were going to produce so-called growth, all it's done is transferred the money around. And so we've got a greater concentration of wealth in a smaller number of people and institutions. And we have a huge amount of instability caused by incredibly inflated balance sheets of both banks and countries. 
And to the extent that now there is a, a, almost an unlimited supply of capital, which is almost at zero interest rate, and yet it hasn't got things moving. He says the big issue is accommodation costs. The housing market, which affects New Zealanders in so many ways, uh, and among them is affecting disposable income. And what we really need to focus on, and this is a problem around the world, is with this very large uh, skilled labour force in the world, there has been very little wage pressure in the cost structure of things, and also at the same time, technology is driving cost out of producing things. So we have had very little inflation and, and, uh, in terms of, of, of our consumable items, but more importantly, our disposable income has not risen uh, uh, very quickly, and of course, accommodation costs are now taking up such a high proportion, particularly uh, of people's incomes living in Auckland. Uh, now, um, by putting headline wages up, and you've seen all the discussions about the living wage and so on, that just makes us less competitive. So what we need to do is lower accommodation costs, and we can do that by more intense accommodation, perhaps smaller places. I mean, we've all gone up with the idea of all living in big places, but maybe that's not going to be possible in the future. And, oh, by the way, intervening in some way to stop the pressure on Auckland actually move people into areas where costs of living are lower. And that means, of course, getting investment into those areas as well. Oliver Hartwich is the executive director of the New Zealand Initiative, a public policy think tank supported by business leaders. He too sees the housing issue as pressing and one that needs disentangling from economic performance. Housing affordability and financial stability are closely linked because we are, or we have become an economy that is heavily um, dependent on the housing market because whether the housing market um, goes up or goes down, it has an impact on our consumption, for example. It has an impact on consumer confidence. So we have become addicted almost to rising house prices, and I think it's a very dangerous addiction, and it's not good for the country because, yes, as an individual, you can get rich on the back of rising house prices, but as a country, you can't. So the country doesn't get richer as a nation just because our housing market is um, buoyant. We have to find um, an economic settlement where the economy does well almost regardless of the housing market. For him, the focus on trying to increase individual wealth through buying and selling houses is a reflection of a particular attitude, but one that's difficult to change. You will only change the culture and the expectations around the housing market once you've actually fixed the housing market and once you've taken the um, reasonable expectation out of the housing market that we are going to see capital gains for years to come. I can tell you that Germany is completely different, for example, when it comes to its housing market. In Germany, house prices basically never change. They've been stagnant for really 40 years. So in real terms, you can still buy a house that you would have paid for the same price that you would have paid in 1970. Now, once you've got that kind of long-term stability culture, people make different choices. They will not jump into the housing market in the early 20s because there's nothing to miss. Even if you enter the housing market in your 30s or 40s, you wouldn't have missed out on any capital gains. Whereas in New Zealand, of course, people do exactly that. They jump in in the early 20s. They get really deep down into mortgage uh, debt because they think if they don't do that, they will miss out and they will never be able to become homeowners in the future. What we really have to do is we have to create a culture of stability, of house price stability, which would then probably also see an increase in rental accommodation because once you know that there is no money to be made by just owning a home, um, why would you? You could just have a more diversified um, range of investments. You could actually get, put your money into term deposits or bonds or equities. You wouldn't have to put all your eggs into one basket, namely housing. But it's something that you can't do overnight because we have really built up these expectations around the housing market 
and a real cultural obsession with the housing market over many decades. Oliver Hartwich sides with the Reserve Bank in regarding the housing problem as one of supply. He highlights how in countries where house prices are under control, such as Germany and Switzerland, local governments can support housing development. They're allowed to raise money through taxes to fund infrastructure, such as roads and sewerage systems, to go with housing expansion. While not warning of any impending crisis, Oliver Hartwich is clear it's not time for the government to be resting on its laurels. There's never a time to be complacent because the times when everything seems to be going swimmingly are the most dangerous times for the economy because that's when you're making the most mistakes. And if you want to see how that can play out, you just have to look at Australia. Australia is now in its, I think, 24th year of uninterrupted economic expansion. And yet nobody would describe the Australian economy as a model to follow because they haven't actually reformed in the last at least 10, maybe 15 years when the Australians first had the mining boom and they thought everything was fine and they didn't have to do much anymore because the money was just coming in. Well, the mining boom is over and when the tide goes out, you can see who was swimming naked. So we don't want to end up like that. So even though our own circumstances are looking much better in comparison, I think we still have a lot of work to do. Oliver Hartwich says more foreign investment is needed in New Zealand to help stimulate economic growth, along with reform to the Resource Management Act. And in the last week, the Economic Development Minister, Stephen Joyce, announced a new national strategy to attract more international business investment and to increase growth throughout the country. But whatever the announcements, some commentators believe there will be very little in the way of real growth until there's major change. Steve Keane was one of a few economists to foresee the global financial crisis. The expatriate Australian is now the head of economics at Kingston University in London, and the business section of the Sydney Morning Herald has named him as their forecaster of the year, being the most accurate of their 25 economic forecasters. Professor Keane argues the levels of debt being held by both Australia and New Zealand and the way the economies are being run means permanent stagnation with the odd fillip of growth are going to be the norm. The only way in the long, very long run that you can pay the debt you acquire is by additional income. So if you have borrowing which generates new productive capacity, that then generates an income stream which can finance that debt at a later stage. But when you're borrowing to buy second-hand houses off each other, you're driving up the price of houses. You don't make the houses produce more kids. They certainly don't produce more widgets for sale. So you have a, an increase in the debt burden with no increase in the capacity to service that debt. And ultimately, you lock yourself into a, into a, a dead end. And this has happened something like 150 times in the last roughly one and a half centuries around the globe. A speculative bubble, normally focused on real estate, but sometimes also on shares, has led to a huge increase in private debt, making people wealthy on the way up, but then reaching the stage where the debt rate growth can't continue, it then plunges, you fall into deleveraging, and that's when you have a financial crisis and an economic crisis. And it's an insane way to run an economy, but it seems to be economic strategy in Australia. I've got to say on that front, New Zealand uh, deserves uh, some accolades because the New Zealand Central Bank has been quite explicit. There's a bubble and quite explicitly trying to do something about it. So I have much more time for the New Zealand uh, Central Bank than I have for Australia's RBA. While avoiding calling the housing market a bubble, the Reserve Bank has said financial stability would be tested if prices fell sharply. So could stagnation descend into something worse? Professor Keane. Unless we reduce the leverage in the housing market, then we're going to have uh, these bubbles occurring. 
the one thing about acceleration, acceleration can't go on forever. If you imagine you're in a car, you can't keep on accelerating forever. You must slow down as you reach its maximum velocity. A similar thing applies to debt. So at some stage, there must be a deceleration. And when that happens, then house prices will fall. It's a question of whether that becomes a runaway process, which it did in America. It hasn't yet in Australia and New Zealand because, in particular in Australia's case, government policies tried to restart the bubble every time it slowed down. But ultimately you get to the stage where there simply isn't that potential anymore, then house prices will plateau. And at that point, of course, if people are losing money on the housing and at some stage required to sell, then you can have a crash in house prices at that point. And I think you're more likely to see them in New Zealand than Australia simply because you don't have the same level of government support for the bubble in New Zealand that exists in Australia. Debt, both public and private, also worries Kim Campbell, and he would like a greater focus on the amount of money owed to bankers overseas. While he says New Zealand is still in a relatively good position compared with other OECD countries, he would like to see public money used productively for assets such as schools and roading. One of the answers that the world... And I think they've kind of identified it, they haven't done anything about it yet, is they really need to recycle this huge amount of capital which is floating around the world actually into hard assets. Then you'll see a real recovery in the world because those hard assets are there for the long haul. They make your world more, uh, more efficient and they employ people while, while they're actually being, being invested. So it's important that in our language we distinguish between spending and, and investing. After the last crisis, many accepted the narrative that the country is protected by the size and security of the banks in Australia, which play such a central role in New Zealand. Steve Keane says that notion is somewhat of a myth. And I think it's a totally overblown belief that Australia was well regulated and the banks were well behaved. Uh, put it this way, the same things were being said about Japanese banks up to 1990 when nine of the world's ten biggest banks were Japanese. Now I think one of the ten is or, or zero. Of course they were financing the Japanese housing bubble and the Australian banks have financed the Australian housing bubble and the New Zealand one as well. So I think they haven't been, haven't been responsible or well managed, they've just been lucky and been rescued by government policy at various times such as back in the global financial crisis for Australia. Rudd ringing what he called the first-time owner's boost and what I call the first-time vendor's boost that encouraged people back into housing debt again. So in in sense of banks doing what you'd want banks to do, you, you, you'd want banks to be funding businesses, to be funding investment and to be funding entrepreneurial activity and instead they're funding asset bubbles. That's all they're doing and the Australian banks are so heavily caught up in housing bubbles and housing finance that if housing finance wasn't growing, they, they would be shrinking. So... Um, I think they're a point of vulnerability for the Australian economy rather than a point of strength. The other sector where debt is an issue at the moment is dairy. It's set to stand at about $30 billion, and the Reserve Bank says half of that is owed by 20% of farmers, with a quarter of all dairy farmers experiencing negative cash flow at present. Some working in the sector believe that negative cash flow figure could be even higher. Uh, This is a family farm. The family's been here since 1940 and I've been farming here since 1986. So the farm's a dairy farm, we're milking 500 cows on 170 hectares. It's all flat. So I'd say stocking rate of just under three cows per hectare. Alan Crouch farms at Orini, just northeast of Hamilton. The farm has been dried off and is about to swing into production again, with the first of the new season calves just starting to be born. Mr Crouch says with the fall in dairy prices, he'll be cutting costs wherever possible and faces a tough winter. 
So given the, the payout structure that they've um, um, put through at the moment, I would expect the cash flow is going to be very, very tight um, all season, really. It's going to be a challenge. Um, even though we've been farming for you know, nearly 30 years here, um, you know, mortgage and just day-to-day -day running costs um, will be barely covered with the current payout. Uh, you know, and, and we are a production system one, so we've got low cost, low cost structure compared to other farms. We can sort of operate around the three dollar milk solid, you know, and even all up with uh, you know with drawings and um, taxation and mortgage payments. You know, we sort of need around that five dollars. So you know, we're going to be very very tight throughout the season. The latest quarterly Rabobank Rural Confidence Survey has shown New Zealand farmer confidence has fallen to its lowest levels in nearly a decade, as dairy farmers throughout the country struggle with the challenges arising from the slump in global markets. Alison Jews is an agri-business consultant and I caught up with her at Auckland Airport before she flew out for a conference. I've been farming as well, I farmed in Australia, I've just come back to New Zealand five years ago. And I look at New Zealand and I didn't feel it was really on the front foot to adapt. When you actually take the layers back on that, to me it seemed that um, New Zealand had been living with these belief systems of the last 30 or 40 years that really you can keep growing and people will keep buying our product. We can keep intensifying vulnerable landscapes and just keep moving. And with that New Zealand had no capital gains and farms could just keep getting bigger and bigger. She says the current predicted lower payouts will make life difficult for farmers. It's not just dairying that's going to be affected because dairying is closely involved with sheep and beef. So rural communities and then onto urban communities are going to have a lot of, uh, there's going to be a lot of constraints, there's going to be a lot less spending. But maybe this isn't all bad. Maybe a bit of pain for New Zealand isn't all bad. It'll help us transition to more sustainable and resilient farming. I mean, there's got to be a silver lining to this at some point. And part of that is that we actually have the most heavily indebted agricultural land in the world, and that really is not sustainable in itself. Alison Jews believes pressure for change is coming from the grassroots up, as leadership at the top has focused on political, short-term economic gain. I'd like to see that New Zealand agriculture transitions to a place that is resilient, uh, that, that can work inside limits, and, and that's going to take a whole lot of new thinking. It's going to mean that we're going to have to stop believing some of the things that we've been told before, that growth can occur forever. New Zealand will always have a clean and green image and we'll never have to prove it that we can carry on borrowing, that the environment will continually absorb everything we do to it, that we'll always have people attracted to our industry. I mean, really, this is a big rethink time for us. And so to get ahead of that, we need to be driven by profit, not production. The slump in dairy prices has sparked a great deal of concern, but Kim Campbell believes the New Zealand economy has an adequately varied base. Uh, the way we've diversified our economy in the last uh, 10 years or so. Yes, dairy is important, but a fall in dairy isn't catastrophic. Whereas in the case of Finland, a fallout of, 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 the, t of, timber, of the timber industry and, and, and uh, Nokia was catastrophic. So we're not quite as dependent on, on one or two things. Yes, dairy is important. 
But we are very competitive producers of dairy. And even if other countries wish to overwhelm the market, eventually we'll win out because we are competitive. We need a microeconomic reform which keeps us a, a competitive economy, and we're doing that. But is micro-reform all that's needed? The Reserve Bank describes the country's external debt as elevated and high by international standards, and it sits almost entirely with overseas banks, particularly Australia. This is one of two large separate living areas, this one flowing out to a north-facing deck. And it's a lovely large sunny deck, all day long sun. Perfect. The North Shore just got to be an even better place to live. The Rose Garden in Albany, a new vibrant community of high quality apartments. To suit the head of financial services at PwC in Australia, Hugh Harley, says he's confident that banks there are well managed and well capitalised. He doesn't anticipate a crisis and points to the strength of demand in the housing market. One of the possibilities is that could, considerable steam could come out of, of the Sydney housing market or the Auckland housing market. You'd be crazy to say that, that that's not possible. I think on, on all of the scenarios that are reasonably foreseeable, then that could all be managed pretty well. Hugh Harley says since the previous crisis, there's been a lot of change in bank balance sheets and that provides some sort of buffer against any downturn. But he concedes that no economy operates in a vacuum. People are very mindful of the fact that the interconnectedness is as great as ever. We really are still in uncharted territory and so this isn't a time for bald statements about saying, you know, she'll be right, mate, whatever happens. I, I know from first-hand experience that that's not, certainly not the position that the Australian banks are taking. He says the world is in a place financially that it hasn't been in before. Interest rates are literally at all-time lows, um, you know, and the, the, our Reserve Bank governor recently made the point that's not just low by, by recent experience, that's low in the history of all humanity. So it is really uncharted territory. So does New Zealand need to begin thinking about change or will steady and careful management continue to keep the ship on course? Kim Campbell describes the New Zealand electorate as mature, open to policy debate and open to change. It does require us, I think, to change our thinking much more dramatically in how we tackle these problems which are actually in our control. I mean, we can't do anything about what's going to happen in Russia. We, you know, what happens in Greece is going to happen. And what happens in the United States, well, that's going to happen as well. But as far as the things like housing in New Zealand, that's not beyond the wit of man. And it does frustrate me uh, that in spite of the efforts of lots of people, we're really not making any significant progress. Professor Keane can't see much chance of what he argues is a much-needed change in direction from leaders. He disagrees with the view that the attitude of bankers in Australia is conservative and believes the general approach to the economy there is one of, she'll be right. However, he suggests there is a chance pressure may start to build among those who are increasingly burdened by the difficulties of housing. I've given up on any real hope that uh, any political leader is going to take this one head on. So it, it seems that you can live in this permanent state of stalemate for a, a ridiculous length of time. I so said the one thing I've got some hope for is that the youth will finally get sick of the uh, things that are propping up the baby boomers, my generation, and, uh, and knock away the supports to the housing market in Australia, and that might cause some political change. Jane Kelsey is adamant the free market economics favoured by the likes of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan should be abandoned. She's hoping for leaders ready to look at alternatives. 
my concern is we shouldn't have to wait until there's a financial crisis for us to do that. We should be able to look at those alternatives, at what a post-neoliberal orthodoxy might look like, and start to take those steps now. And my biggest concern is that all the mainstream political parties are too scared to do that because the fire alarms will ring and the dire warnings of investor flight and investment strike and credit rating downgrades and sheer ridicule uh, will mean that they don't bite the bullet that they need to. $530,000. I'm Philip Atolli and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this program, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz our Twitter handle is rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented this program. It was produced by Gail Woods with technical production by William Saunders.